Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. I had mentioned last week that there were four things I'd hoped everyone would do um, in this series. And the first one was that you would read Romans 8, which is the text we're going through over the next six weeks, uh, as many times as you can and you're willing to uh, just to let it sink into your heart and mind, soul, uh, even your strength and live it out in your strength. Uh, the second one was that you would come to as many of these messages as you can because they're each going to build on each other. And if you have to miss a week, then I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, the third one was to bring your Bible so that you're actually reading along with us in the text itself. You could do that in the, the app form or in the hard copy form. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to get you a Bible. Let us know if you don't have a Bible. We'd be happy to get you one. And the last one is to invite your community, invite your friends to join you because these are really important messages and uh, they could be very transformational for our community. So last week, we began this conversation on Romans 8.1. And Romans uh, itself is kind of like the the... The crown of Christian theology. A lot of scholars would say, man, this is, if you want to understand Christian theology, go to Romans. Although it's very dense and theological, yes, but Paul really just lays it out, um, everything that you need to know about Christian um, theology. And then Romans 8, they would say, this is the, the jewel on top of the crown. And so this is like the, the pinnacle. If, if you want to understand God's love and what God has accomplished for you and what he has set us up for, Romans 8 is the place to go. And so over the next seven weeks, six weeks, we're going to continue to walk through Romans 8. And here's how he begins. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, of course, this is exciting, right? Because there is no condemnation. This is the finale of the fireworks display that he lit the fuse way back in chapter 3 of Romans. And now we get to this incredible statement. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if being in Christ is the key to freedom then Paul would suggest that those who are outside of Christ will be condemned when they stand before God on the final day. And now when we say things like that, the world looks at us and they said, how narrow-minded can you be? Do you understand what that implies? Man, Christians, you're so bigoted, you're so exclusive. Man, do you understand that only those who are in Christ? We say things like that. And we all have friends and family. People that we know, people that we care about, people that we love dearly, really, really good people by any standard. Maybe some of the best, most generous people that we know. Kind-hearted. You're telling me that they're going to stand before God on the last day and they're going to be condemned? And Paul would simply reply, guys, 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 people aren't going to stand before God condemned because they're not good people. Because, you know, somehow, like, their, 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 bad way, their bad deeds outweighed their good deeds. Somehow, like, you know, God's not going to determine that. He's, he's, he's going to say, guys, you realize that people are going to stand before God condemned because nobody, I don't care how generous you are, I don't care how good you are by your own efforts, nobody can meet the standard that is required. Nobody is good enough. He says back in chapter 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. And the payment for having sided with death is, or with sin is death. But while we were still sinners, did you know that Christ died for us? 
I mean, he, he, he pleads, God, who will rescue me from this, this body that is subject to sin and death? Well, thanks be to God. He is the one who delivers us through Christ Jesus. God has made salvation and freedom and rescue available to everyone. It's just that those who keep relying on themselves, all the good people that we know, all the wonderful, generous, kind-hearted, loving people that we know who continue to rely on themselves to fix the problem that they know that they have. We talked about this last week. Everyone is religious. They're going to come up short. And it's not that God is being harsh or mean. It's just that heaven isn't habitable to sinners. Heaven is only habitable to a certain kind of people. Imagine that there's like this other dimension. Get a little scientific with me or sci-fi with me here. Imagine that there's like this other dimension, this other realm. And in this world, people don't breathe oxygen. You know, whatever is in the air... Our lungs can't breathe it. It would burn our skin. It's so heavy that it would just collapse our lung, implode our eyeballs, smush our brains. Like we just, we can't breathe, exist in this environment. Humans can't survive on that planet the way they are. So if humans are going to live there, they're going to have to experience a complete transformation of everything about them. And that's kind of like the difference between earth and heaven. Entrance into heaven isn't about going through the pearly gates where it's just like, God, couldn't you just be a little more gracious to people? Couldn't you just allow just a few more people in? Couldn't you just lower the standard just a little bit? And God was like, I I, I can't because sinners can't exist in this environment. Entrance into heaven requires a remaking of everything that we are, fundamentally that we are. It involves the changing of our being, the dying to the self-centered ways and being conformed into the image of Christ. Heaven is God's space and only those like God can exist there. That may seem like an odd way. Again, for those of you who don't like sci-fi, I apologize, right? But like, that's essentially what Paul is trying to say in chapter 8 of Romans. He says, only those in Christ's likeness will not be condemned on the final day, which the perfect fulfillment of the law would have achieved, but all have sinned and fallen short of it. So God himself fulfilled it in Christ, and in so doing, he took sin and death and the law revealed, and he nailed it to the cross in his own flesh, putting it to death, killing it, and condemning sin and death there. He then transfers his faithfulness to all who are in him, who have trusted, believed, placed their faith and confidence in him, which is just a fancy way of saying that they have put him at the center of their lives. And when he's there, we are justified and we are empowered by his spirit, which is where Paul then is going to take the conversation in the next several uh, several verses. This is basically a, a very dense summary of the very dense theological treatise that Paul is making in Romans 8, 1 through 4. Today, now, he's going to clarify, again, in a dense theological way, what it means to be in Christ. What does it mean, practically speaking, for someone to be in Christ? If being in Christ is the freedom from condemnation, how do we know if we're in Christ? And Paul explains, as he continues in verse 5. He says this, "Those Those who live according to the flesh have their minds. Now, Paul is going to mention this word mind several times in uh, this, this section. And it's not just about what we think about. Um, it's, it's really about who we sided with. The Greek word indicates who we sided with. Or if we are one in mind with, we may use that language. Like, are you one in mind with that or one in mind with this? Like, that's the idea that we have sided with, that we're of the same mind. Like, we're on this team or we're in this gang or we're part of this party. I'm affiliated with them, and the group belief and the group behavior now is true of me. Like, as part of the gang, I'm going to act and behave and think a certain way like all the other gang members do. 
Being part of a political party generally assumes that we're aligned with the beliefs of said party. Those who live according to the flesh, Paul would say, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. They believe and they behave in a fleshly way. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. And when Paul speaks of the flesh again, he's not talking about our physical bodies or even this physical world. He's talking about the way of life that is rebellion to God, that is hostile to God, that is opposed to God. And not only God, but God's ways and God's will and God's hope for us and God's desires for us and God's intentions for us as his created people. Church fathers use the Latin phrase to describe this, this life of the flesh. And here's what they said. They said it was homo incurvatus in se. It's a phrase that means man bent in on himself or the heart bent in on himself. The person who has themselves at the center of their being. Or as we described last week, it's the impulse to put me at the center, right? To sift my self-worth, my behavior, my words, my purpose, my identity through the filter of me and what's good for me and what benefits me. To be fleshly, in other words, lives to mean selfishly. It's the belief and idea that I am most, uh, what, most important and I'm going to protect me and preserve me and advance me than at all costs. And you might be thinking, Ross, only sociopaths and serial killers actually think that way and live that way. And it's true. You know, look back at the Mosaic Law. Um, it introduced and even fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It, it made incredible civic advancements through, throughout Throughout history, the selfishness had been tempered in world history because of the Mosaic Law. A little history lesson. When the Israelites entered into the land of Canaan, way back in the book of Joshua, Canaan had no law. It was anarchy. People did what they want. The mentality of the day was eat or be eaten. It, it, take what you want. And, you know, if you're stronger than the person that you're taking it from, great. You're going to take it. You're going to get it in the end. But if they're stronger, then it might lead in your death. But, hey, if you want it, go ahead. Try to take it. If it's a girl... If it's a man, if it's a slave, it's property, whatever it is, take what you want. There was no law. Anarchy was the way of the world. And so when the, the, the Mosaic law entered into society, it was a huge step forward in, in civil responsibility towards your brother and towards your neighbor. And then when Jesus came again, he, he advanced that law even further as he said, no, 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 not eye for an eye, not tooth for a tooth. No, we're going to love our enemies. Even our enemies we're going to love and care for. It may be more subtle today, but selfishness is still behind all the chaos in the world. Chaos, uh, selfishness is still behind all of the chaos in the world. That, that's a big umbrella, and I get it, but underneath every war and household skirmish and every bully on the playground, every enslavement, every burst of anger, every put-down, every slander, every lazy body, and every busy body, all impatience, all inconsideration, all rudeness, all envy, all boasting, all lying, all cheating, and so much more that we could spend all day talking about. Behind all of it, underneath all of it, is a self-reigning heart born from sin. A selfish person who wants for themselves what they can get for themselves. We live in a world then that is going to subtly promote us to focus on, to set our minds on, to side with, to party with, to be affiliated with the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh, to think selfishly. Consider just a few cultural examples. The top two movies in 2023, according to Rotten Tomatoes, were Oppenheimer a movie about how some people weren't getting what they wanted, so they went to war, and in order to stop them, some other people had to kill everyone. The second 
most popular movie, according to Rotten Tomatoes, Killers of the Flower Moon, a movie about how some people weren't getting what they wanted, so they went to war. And in order to stop them, some people had to kill everyone. The top two songs right now on the top 100 chart, Yes And by Ariana Grande, a song that basically says, this life is mine, so I'll do what I want with it. The second most popular song right now, Lovin' On Me by Jack Harlow, a song that basically says, I'm going to do what I want, so you better get in line with it. The greatest mediums influencing this generation are what they see and what they hear. And what we're seeing, what we're hearing are essentially for us to say, hey, take what you want, get what you want, do what you want, because really this life is short and it's all about you. So take advantage, put yourself at the center, do what you want. We could go on and on and on, use different examples, like drive down to Philly and see what's being advertised to you on the billboards. What you're going to find, you're going to inundated with uh, law firm billboards, you're going to inundated with jewelry billboards and strip club promotions. That's essentially what you're going to be inundated with as you drive down into Philly. And so it's like, you know, someone did you wrong. Well, you know what? You should get back at them. You should stroke your egos. You guys should all wear more jewelry. You should objectify and degrade our daughters. Look at what we focus our minds on. Look at what we're allowing to infiltrate our hearts. Look at what's influencing us on how to be human. And I'm not saying that, you know, as a Christian, you should only ever watch The Chosen. And you should only ever listen to K-Love. And you should just be ashamed if you have more than a wedding ring on your finger. I'm not saying that, right? What, what I'm saying is that what's at the center of your life will bear fruit in your life. What's at the center of your life will bear fruit in your life. What's at the center of your life will come out in your actions and in your words and in your choices. And we don't live in a world that encourages us to put Jesus there. We don't encourage us to, to we don't live in a world that encourages us to put God there, but chaos ruin and a wake of destruction will follow us if we put ourselves there which is what the world is promoting us if we side with the ways of the flesh paul is simply saying if you want to know if christ is at the center of your life if you want to know if you are in christ your life will reveal it because the mind governed by the flesh is death he continues but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The person who is in the world, the person who is focused on the fleshly desires, who is focused on themselves, who has them at the center of their being, who is depending on themselves to be their own savior, this will produce death, he is saying. It will produce chaos. They'll always be at odds with people. Their choice for the self will come out sideways. Their marriage will be in shambles. They'll be hollow at best. Their relationships will be strained. Chaos and ruin, destruction, death will follow them. Their life is void of love and peace because the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Literally, it hates God and his ways because love demands self-sacrifice and the person who is bent on themselves does not want to self-sacrifice. They want to self-promote. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, they can't please God. But the person who has Christ at the center because they've confessed their selfish ways. They've died to their selfish ways. They repented of them. They've let them be crucified with Christ. They've trusted in Christ to rule over their lives. They will experience life and peace, he says. Wouldn't that be nice? Experience life and peace because they are now governed by God's spirit, which always produces love in us. And so Paul is like, guys, this isn't rocket science. This isn't brain surgery. 
You want to know what's at the center of your life? You want to know if you are in Christ? You want to know what you're in? Well, just look at your life, he say. Look at the fruit. What you've sided with, what team you're on, what party you're in, just look at your life. It'll be revealed in your actions and in your thoughts and in behavior and your tongue. It'll be revealed. Look at your life. How do you know if you're in Christ? Well, look at the fruit because the evidence of the spirit or of the flesh will be revealed in you. Let me share how this worked out in my life. When I was in high school in Minnesota, I went down the street. This is just before I went off college. I went down the street and there was a garage sale happening in at the end of the driveway, there was this little girl who was selling lemonade at a homemade lemonade stand. I wanted to support this little entrepreneur, and so I, I went up to her, and there's a sign on her little table, and it says, hand-picked, freshly squeezed, homemade lemonade. And I'm from Minnesota, right? And so I'm like, wow, hand, hand-picked lemons in Minnesota? I've never seen hand-picked lemons in Minnesota. This, this is amazing. And so I started a little conversation with her. I was like, hey, wh- I, I love that you're doing this. Where did you hand-pick lemons in minnesota and she looks over and it's like i my lemon tree in my front yard i look i'm like lemon i've never seen a lemon tree in minnesota before i'm like i look over but sure enough there's these little yellow dots on the end of this branch it's like wow there's a lemon tree in this yard that's that's amazing and so you know i'm like i'm i'm still confused because i've never seen a lemon tree in minnesota before and so i'm just going about my you know perusing what's available i'm just kind of keep looking over at this lemon tree i'm like you know what that really looks like a maple tree. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, I just, I just, I kind of make my way closer to it a little bit. And I'm just like, that's a maple tree. And I, and I walk up closer to them looking at these, these, these little yellow dots and yeah, sure they're lemons, but they are tied to the end <laughs> of this maple tree branch. <clears throat> and I'm like, just standing there looking at this lemon, these lemons on this maple tree branch. And the mom sees me, you know, she comes over, she's like, you know, my daughter, she really wanted the sign to say handpicked, and she really just dreamt of having, like, handpicked lemonade. She really wanted to be special, separate her different different from all the other lemonade stands in the neighborhood, you know. And so I just, like, you know, I did what I could. I did what was best, and I just tied some lemons so that she could say she picked them from her lemon tree. Adorable story, right? Yeah, but here, here, here's what I experienced in my life, in my pursuit of Jesus over the years. For a long time after I began an appreciation for Jesus, and let me just be honest with you, that's all it was in the beginning. And and I may have said that I was a devout follower of Jesus. I was leading worship at our university. We had thousands of people on Sunday nights come, and we were the leaders of, of, of these people to praise and honor God. I was a Bible and theology major in college. I studied the Bible. I attended church. I led the Bible studies. I preached before my peers. But if I were to to, to really think and and to look back on those years, I had an appreciation for Jesus, but that was about it. I called myself a Christian, but the Spirit didn't produce any organic fruit in me. I masqueraded as a Christian. I tied fruit to branches that weren't producing any, so that I would look like a mature follower of Jesus among my peers and among my professors, among my leaders. As a teenager, I would, I would preach under this disguise. I led worship for thousands of people under this disguise. I studied the Bible under this disguise. I was one of those people who Jesus described when he said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus, I led worship for you. 
I led Bible studies for you. I was a leader for you. I preached the gospel. And Jesus would say to me, that may be true, but I never knew you. And you, likewise, never knew me. You see, in those early days, there was no tension in me. There was no tension in me. What's interesting about fruit-producing trees is that all winter long they sit dormant, saving up resources so that when it's warm and ready, they can push those resources to the buds to blossom a flower. And there is tension in the xylem, the capillaries that send all these resources through the trunk and through the branches. These capillaries are literally stretched with tension as they surge with life through them. And we can't see it and we can't hear it with our, with our naked eye and with our naked ear, but the tree is literally vibrating and literally buzzing as it does so. And once the flower is mature, the tree again pushes all of its resources of, of minerals and water to the flower and it literally swells. And eventually the smallest, tiniest little fruit can become evident. But like that tree, the first sign of the Spirit's work in any of us is probably inner tension. It may be the smallest ding of your conscience, some injustice that is now bothering you that never bothered you before. You may pause before speaking instead of just running your mouth like you used to do all the time. You may feel compelled to stop before getting completely smashed and drunk and you stop instead of rushing into the next drink like you typically do. You may just feel burdened by how you've treated your spouse when that type of behavior was just typical within your marriage before. There's like some sort of like inner tension that you hadn't experienced prior to this. You see, when you're at the center of your life, when you're, you're living a me-centered life, when it's all about you, 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 when your life has you firmly at the center, and you're confident and you're content there, you deal with tension by fleeing from it, denying it, deflecting it, avoiding it, assaulting it, or killing it. You're a self-protecting person, remember, right? Self-protection is, is, a, is a value that you hold on to. And that's hostile to God. It's hostile to others, and it will lead to death, and it will lead to chaos, Paul says. And my life was full of tension, as all of our lives are full of tension. But the tension wasn't inside of me. It was all external, because that's what's going to happen when you're living for yourself. You're going to create a lot of external tension, but you're going to avoid or deflect the internal tension. And that's exactly what I did. I never allowed the tension to bring me to a point of surrender. I always deflected it and I always avoided it. That was my default. I deflected, I deflect tension and I avoid tension. I never allowed, allowed it to bring me to the point of surrender. You see, I think God often uses tension to knock us off our thrones to make room for him, to, make, to take his rightful place. Tension is God's gift to the self-secure. Tension is God's gift to the self-secure. And God kept trying me to get me to that point of, of, of relying on him. I had tension in my relationships. I had tension in my schooling. I had tension in, in, in my heart, in my, heart in, my, in my inner peace. But I would never allow it to bring me to that point of surrender. I always just deflected it and I always avoided it. But man, that is exhausting after a while as you keep crawling back up on top of your throne when God is saying that should be my rightful place. And I remember one night before my, my senior year of college, I was reading First Timothy because, again, that's what good Christians do, right? I presented to the world that I was this good, mature Christian, but I, I really wasn't surrendered to God. I wasn't allowing the tension in my life to bring me to that all-important place of surrender. And so I'm reading First Timothy, 
And I remember that I came across this one passage in particular, and this has become my, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and it's so easy and it's so stupid, and you're thinking, this is the gospel. Why, why did it take you so long? And I don't know what it was going on in my life. I, I probably actually do. Emily had probably recently broken up with me at that point. And I was kind of like in this, this rubble as it was, right? And so you're reading these things, and all of a sudden, when, when your life circumstances finally meets your ability to hear, it's like finally there was this collision and there was explosion, and all of a sudden things began to make sense. And I read this passage in 1 Timothy, and it just rocked me to my core, and it just shattered me, and it broke me. And here's what I read in 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was it. That's all I needed. Whatever was happening in my life there, whatever tension I was in the middle of, some reason, this was the explosion I needed. And it's so simple, it's almost stupidly simple. This is the gospel I preached a hundred times before I had read it. I knew it in my head, I preached this, I sang about it for years, but whatever reason, that night, I knew it in my heart and it broke me. I knew I was fake. I knew I was fake. And I confessed it. To God that I had denied this fundamental truth because I was ultimately trying to fix myself still. Through my own self-righteousness, I wanted the credit. I wanted the attention. I wanted the accolades. I wanted to be the center and to receive the praise. Do you know what it's like? It's, a, it's like a, it's to stand in front of a thousand, several thousand people on a stage. It was, like a, it was like a drug for me. I wanted the attention. I wanted to be the center of it all. I wanted the accolades. I wanted the praise. And all that time, as I was doing so, I was denying that Jesus was the Savior because I was ultimately relying on myself. I was living for the praise of the world, and I was just tying lemons to my arms, pretending that Jesus was at the center of my life when really my life was all about me. And that night, I surrendered. I confessed, and that's where it begins, friends. You need to acknowledge that, that Jesus isn't in the center. Acknowledge, own it. I confessed that Jesus was not at the center and I shoved myself out of the center and I confessed that I had taken God's rightful place there. I cleared off the throne. I let my selfish pursuit die. I crucified the flesh and I let God in to rule and to reign there. And it's not like I just became this matured follower of Jesus overnight. That's just not how it works. Like any fruit on any tree or vine, if in its infancy, it's just non-existent, right? There's this buzzing inside of me that I hadn't experienced before. I, I felt that inner tension that really I hadn't, I just avoided before. But there was this buzzing inside of me, right? The resources were coming to the surface. There was a buzzing and a vibrating in me. They were, the resources were coming outward and my heart began to swell and my soul and my strength and my mind began to swell and the fruit eventually, yeah, and in the beginning it was just like this little baby. But eventually the fruit matured and the fruit grew. And it grows, my friends, when Jesus takes more of his rightful place at the center of your life. When your center becomes less and less crowded and cluttered, when your center becomes less and less about you and more and more about Jesus, fruit begins to grow. I had moved from what Paul calls the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. He continues in verse 9. You, however, you're not in the realm of the flesh any longer. You're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Again, how do you know if you belong to Christ? Well, Paul would say, if you've surrendered your selfish ambition, if you've crucified your, your fleshly pursuits, your fleshly desires, the Spirit will begin to manifest 
the life of the Spirit within you. And Paul actually provides several lists of examples throughout his various letters about what this, this fruit actually looked like. What, what does the, the fruit, the, the life of the Spirit, actually look like? He says in Romans, there's a disdain for evil, that you honor others above yourself, that you're joyful, that you're hopeful, that you're patient in trial, that you're generous and hospitable, that you bless rather than curse others, even if they are cursing you, that you're peaceful, that you're humble. In 1 Corinthians, he adds that you'll, you'll experience kindness and contentment, forgiving. You rejoice with truth, you protect, you're trusting, you're enduring. In Galatians, he adds that you're faithful, that you're gentle, that you're self-controlled. In Ephesians, he says that you're a person of honesty and integrity and that you strive for justice. In Colossians, he says compassion and fortitude. That's the ability to rise above little things, to not let little skirmishes weigh you down, but to rise above little things. And above all else, he says in Colossians, above all else, love, which binds all of the fruits of the Spirit together. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are examples of the life of the Spirit in us. And when Jesus is more prominently enthroned in our lives, and these will be more evident in you, Paul is saying. And so do a quick inventory. Is this how your life is lived, or are these missing in your life? He said, this is the life of the Spirit. This is the life of Christ. These will become more evident in you. These will grow in you when Jesus is firmly at the center, when you are living in christ but paul's not naive he's not suggesting that these are going to be perfected in you on this side of eternity he just spent an entire chapter in romans chapter 7 talking about how this life is a wrestling match between the, the the body the life that is subject to death and sin and and the mind of the spirit that is enslaved to to the life of christ Our minds and our hearts, they can be free to live for Christ. The vibrating, buzzing spirit of God in us reveals our internal tension. And whenever we feel tension in our mind, our heart, our soul, our stomach, the spirit is telling you that your heart is crowded, that your heart is cluttered. And in those moments, in those scenarios, there's less of Jesus and there's more of you. Yesterday at um, my son's wrestling match, I was taking my daughter to the concession stand. And on the ground was a $100 bill. What do you guys, what happens when you see a $100 bill on the ground? Doesn't tension begin to, to rise up in you a little bit? And so I, I'm like, oh, I pick up my $100 bill and I'm like looking around. Did anybody just see me take that? What do, what do you do in those, in those scenarios? Doesn't greed begin to wrestle integrity in those? Because it's not my $100 bill. I, I looked around, I was like, nobody's looking like they lost anything. And so I put it in my pocket. And I walked to the concession stand. And I'm going, to leave you in t- I'm going to leave you in suspense as to what I did with that $100 bill. <laughs> now I hand it in, right? Because it's not my $100 bill. But there is a tension between greed and integrity in those moments. And what wins? Does the, does the life of the spirit win or does the life of the flesh win? In those moments when you experience tension, what are you going to allow to die? Are you going to allow the spirit to die in you and say, you know what, I'm going to pocket this 100 bucks. I could do a lot with that. If it was just a dollar, I probably wouldn't care. Even $10, man, no big deal. But 100 bucks that's a significant amount of money. Am I going to let the, the spirit die within me by pocketing it myself? Or am I going to let the flesh die within me and handing it in and saying, you know what, if anybody comes to you saying that they lost $100, here it is. We have options. And Paul is saying, it's not going to be easy. I get it. You know, the life of the spirit in you doesn't going to make you perfect. But it is going to raise the tension in you he's not naive 
being in Christ doesn't mean that we fly above the trouble of the world or are draw to sin, but we have a power within us to live rightly, to live righteously. He continues and he concludes this section. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. We will be raised to life in the end. Yes, this world is going to be full of trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world and all who participate in Jesus will experience redemption and resurrection alongside of him. Paul says that we will be justified on the final day. That's just a fancy theological term that says when we stand before God, God will say, you're not condemned. You are not condemned because the spirit of God who raised those who are in Christ, when God raised Jesus, the individual, he also raised the Messiah, the one who represents the body. And so for those who are in Christ, we will experience the same resurrection that Jesus experienced because he is passing his faithfulness on to each and every one of us. Rest assured, friends, everybody is going to die, but those in Christ will only die to live again. We're on our way to life. Death is just an inevitable interlude that we must pass along the way. We're going to sing one final song as we conclude our time together this morning to help us reflect on this. Later in Romans, Paul is going to encourage us to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And here's that word mind again, the word we started with. Your life will be changed when, you're, when you change sides, he says. When you begin to think differently, when you begin to say that I'm not part of the fleshly team anymore, God, I'm part of the spiritual team. That is when your life begins to change. When you become one in mind, not with the flesh, not with the world, but with the spirit. Because, my friends, once upon a time, every single one of us had me, had us firmly at the center of our being, and we lived that way. And the fruit of that was death and chaos and destruction everywhere that we went. But when we let that die, when we surrendered it, Christ said, I'm going to build something new in you. I'm going to transform you into the likeness of my son. I'm going to conform you into the likeness of Jesus. And I'm going to give you his same spirit so that you can live rightly and in you is going to be producing incredible fruit for the world to see the fruit of life, the fruit of love, the fruit of peace. Even though there might be tension all around you, peace within your heart, soul, mind. Heavenly Father, I don't, I don't know what everybody's dealing with right now in this room. I don't know where everybody's at in their relationship with you, but I know, Father, that when we live in fleshly ways, when we live and when we side with the ways of the world, which says, hey, you should put yourself more firmly at the center, that you, you should... Uh, you should, you should be more selfish. You should think of yourself more. You should protect yourself more. Preserve yourself more. Do what's good for you. When that, when that comes out in our mouth and in our behavior, it hurts. And we know it hurts us because it leads to hostility with you and it leads to death. And it leads to chaos, and that follows us everywhere we go. And so, Father, I just I pray that you would open our 
eyes to the tension that we experience and that we would stop avoiding it and deflecting it and killing it and assaulting it or overlooking it, Father, or however we tend to deal with, with tension in the, in the world of the flesh, Father, that we would just stop and we would say, God, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to tell me, Father? There's so much tension in my life. And there's... Maybe it's there because I'm at the middle of everything. And there's no room for you. And so, I need you more in my life, Father. I need to, I need to shove myself aside. I need to crucify the flesh. I need to let my selfish pursuits die. Every single day, God, I take up my cross and I follow you. I crucify the flesh again. I take up my cross. I follow you every single day. Father, may you just grow in me the fruit of your spirit, the fruit that you promised would be evident, the fruit that you promised would be revealed, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and justice and grace and the ability to forgive and to overlook wrongs and Man, that would create so much peace. Not only in the world, but in me. And so, Father, may we be a people who are submitted and surrendered to you, who are saying, you know what, I recognize that there's always going to be a part of me that is a little cluttered in here. But, Father, I want more of Jesus and less of me, more of Jesus and less of me. And so every day I'm going to say, God, I'm going to take an inventory. God, where are you and where am I? Help me have the eyes to see, but the strength then, strength then, to submit and to surrender, the courage then to submit and to surrender and to, to invite you more in to the lordship of my life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're just going to sing a final song quickly that kind of reflects on this a little bit. And if you want to sit and stand, you're welcome to do whatever you'd like. Join us. Amen, friends. Maybe be the prayer for all of us as we go. God bless you all. See you again next week.